Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimas. And I'm Dana Lemagier. And today's topic is on human origin. Oh, like where we came from? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, LA. Right. Yeah. Everyone originated <laughs> from California, right? <laughs> Just kidding. In Everyday Apologetics, we'll hear from Fuzz Rana on a closer look at chemical evolution. And in Science Faith Connection, Jeff Swarnk will talk with Fuzzle Rana on Is Chromosome 2 a Merger? First up will be Culture Talk. Sandra will be interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross on a scientific and biblical view of human origins. So let's go ahead and check it out. Now it's time for Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics that you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with astrophysicist Hugh Ross. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. You know, you are well known for being in kind of any environment, but especially as you travel for ministry, being on planes and having conversations with strangers and like having deep conversations. Um, so I want to kind of dive into some of the conversations you have had. Um, so say you're sitting on a plane, and you're talking with the science-minded skeptic. I'm sure you've had... I've had uh, a few of those Yeah, a few of those situations. <laughs> um, so you're discussing, discussing your mutual uh, professions, and questions arise about how we got here. Um, what would you expect to see from a biblical account of human origins if that is the true account? Like, what, if you're, and you're talking with a, a science-minded skeptic, they're going to want to know that. Yeah, well, you're going to see, you actually would predict from a biblical perspective that mm -hmm. you would see uh, a chain of bipedal primate species of Procedas, mm -hmm. where each successive one's a little more capable of hunting large body bird and mammal species. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't expect to see a lot of them, so you expect to see a fairly scant fossil record of those species, but you need them there in order to train. Uh, the large-body bird mammals. Mm -hmm. When you see tall bipedal mammals with weapons in their hands, run away. Because mm -hmm. it tells us in the Bible that God designed the birds and mammals to come to us, to serve and please us, and relate to us. Mm -hmm. But God knew ahead of time that humans would fall into sin. And when they fall into sin, they would abuse the very animals mm -hmm. that God had actually specially created to help us launch civilization. And the proof for that is those continents that didn't have bipedal primate before humans showed up, uh, there was a huge extinction of bird and mammal species when mm -hmm. humans entered. Australia, the extinction rate was above 94%. Wow. Whereas in Africa, it was only 4.5%. So killing for sport. They weren't killing for sport, they were killing for food. Mm -hmm. But the large-bodied bird and mammal species mm -hmm. are the easiest ones mm -hmm. uh, to kill. And so, and that was what Neanderthals fed on mm -hmm. predominantly and other bipedal primates, but they weren't as skilled at hunting as we humans. Mm -hmm. And so many of them survived. And they quickly figured out when you see these tall bipedals, run away because right. they mean us harm. Uh, whereas in Australia, uh, these uh, bird and mammal species were naturally drawn to humans right. that quickly wiped them out. Similar things happen in North and South America. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why you don't get an aggressive launch of civilization in the early history of humans in Australia, North America, and South America. They lack the bipedal primates that were needed to ensure that the animals, most essential for uh, civilization, actually survived. 
So when we're talking about a biblical account for human origins, you're saying that what we would expect to see in the fossil record is the existence of bipedal primates to kind of train animals in a sense to be aware of bipedal creatures. Well, what's interesting about the fossil record, mm -hmm. it doesn't fit a naturalistic record because mm -hmm. a naturalistic uh, perspective, you'd expect that the bipedalism mm -hmm. would gradually improve mm -hmm. as you go from one species to the next to the right. next. Likewise, uh, the size and structure of the brain would mm -hmm. become more and more human-like. Mm -hmm. That's not what we see. What you see in the uh, fossil record of the hominids mm -hmm. is that bipedal capability does this. Mm -hmm. And same thing with the brain. In fact, the most recent bipedal primate uh, was uh, Homo florensis, and that creature had a brain the size of a chimpanzee, only a quarter the size of a human brain, mm -hmm. and certainly lacked the brain structure uh, for advanced function. So there again, the fossil record is the opposite Mm -hmm. of what you expect from a naturalistic perspective. Right. But the one thing you would anticipate from a biblical perspective, mm -hmm. you'd see an improvement in the capability of these creatures being able to hunt large-bodied bird and mammal species. Mm -hmm. That we do see. So we do see this gradual development of these skills, and that is what is expected from a biblical account from a naturalistic account, what we would expect to see is... A step-by-step step step progress step. towards mm -hmm. uh, the human brain right. and towards human bipedal capability, mm -hmm. the human digestive system, mm -hmm. and that's not what we see in the fossil record. It's chaotic. So it goes uh, so up and down. It goes towards human mm -hmm. beings and then away from human mm -hmm. beings. So it's doing that all the way through. Mm -hmm. And a common statement you see in the scientific literature every time we make uh, a fossil discovery mm -hmm. of a new bipedal primate species, it throws the naturalistic model into greater chaos, not less. Mm -hmm. So, and that's been going on for the past 100 years. The other thing we notice too, that's a problem for the naturalistic mm -hmm. model, is that we see so few fossil finds for the non-human bipedal primates that it tells us their population levels were very low. Mm -hmm. If they're pop and we're talking like say for Neanderthals, tops 15,000 individuals at any given time, mm -hmm. spread over an enormous habitat size, which explains why you look at the genetics, we see that they're ingrowing. Uh, so you don't see the genetic diversity, and uh, with a population that low, you're not going to see uh, significant evolutionary change. And it's also seen when you look at the oldest Neanderthals and compare with the most recent fossil finds, you can't see a significant difference. Mm -hmm. The populations simply weren't high enough uh, to drive any significant evolution. I mean, even for our own human species, mm -hmm. with the billions of us, that's still uh, not high enough to drive significant uh, evolutionary change in our morphology. So then from a Christian or a biblical perspective, explain to me how a gradual change is different from evolution, because that sounds like evolution. Well, evolution mm -hmm. uh, naturalistically would predict that, you know, as you get natural selection, mm -hmm. mutations, gene exchange, yeah. epigenetics, this will cause new species to develop, mm -hmm. and the proliferation of new species 
if you wait long enough, we'll make new genera. New genera will make new uh, uh, families, then new orders, mm -hmm. uh, new classes, and last of all, new phyla. Mm -hmm. But what you actually see in the fossil record, and I'm talking like the past 600 million years, is the opposite. The phyla show up first. They show up suddenly as soon as conditions permit their existence. Mm -hmm. They show up simultaneously. And uh, last of all, you get the proliferation of the species. What you see in the fossil record is the exact opposite of what you'd expect uh, from a naturalistic perspective, mm -hmm. but from a biblical perspective, where God is aggressively packing the earth with as much life as possible, as diverse as possible, in order to get all the bio deposits in the crust of the earth, so the humans at just the right time can use those deposits to launch civilization. That's what the fossil record supports. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. This is a very deep topic, and I know that we yeah, can Yeah, we've only... written several books on it. Right, so. I know we can barely kind of scratch the surface, but I think it's, it's helpful to kind of understand a basic conversation that someone can have. I know it's, it's technical, but some basic points on what we would expect to see from a biblical account versus a strictly naturalistic account for human origins. So I'm going to recommend Who is Adam? and origins of life okay yeah? good um so if you would like more on this topic be sure to check out dr ross's book which he wrote with fuzzle rana look for who was adam and also origins of life one of the most important ideas in the evolutionary paradigm is the idea that life comes fundamentally from non-life. The idea here is that a complex chemical mixture underwent self-organization to generate the very first cells. This is also called abiogenesis or chemical evolution. And this idea was first proposed in the 1920s by two scientists, Alexander Oparin, a Russian biochemist, and J.B.S. Haldane, a British geneticist, and is also known as the Oparin-Haldane hypothesis. And the idea here is that on the early Earth, the environment was very different than today. And on this, on this early Earth environment, uh, simple chemical materials, underwent chemical transformations stimulated by energy discharges, let's say in the atmosphere, like lightning, that drove the production of small organic materials that accumulated in the Earth's oceans to form this well-known prebiotic soup, a primordial soup. And out of in, within that soup, chemical reactions continued to take place that began to produce ever-increasingly complex molecules that began to associate with each other to form protocells that then evolved to give rise to the very first life form. And that once this life form was in place, it, it, it in turn began to evolve to produce the evolutionary tree of life. And so the idea here is that the origin of life, abiogenesis, chemical evolution, is a critical and important idea in the evolutionary paradigm explaining how life itself got started from an inanimate, non-living universe. Now, justification or validation for this Oparin-Haldane hypothesis came in the early 1950s, according to scientists, when a young graduate student by the name of Stanley Miller, who was at the University of Chicago, did the famous Miller-Urey experiment that shows up in every biology textbook. And what Stanley Miller did was went into the lab and assembled a glass apparatus that was rather elaborate, that was supposed to simulate the conditions of the early Earth. He had a beaker 
of, of boiling water that was supposed to simulate the hot temperatures of the early Earth and the boiling oceans. And that boiling water sent steam into the headspace of his apparatus. He was very careful to make sure no oxygen was present in the apparatus. And then he introduced methane and ammonia and uh, uh, hydrogen gas, believed to be present in the early atmosphere, and then had a continuous electrical discharge going through that that simulated atmosphere and over the course of a few days noticed that chemical reactions were happening in the apparatus and was eventually able to show after, after a few weeks that amino acids formed in this system. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins which are very important life molecules. And so people believed at that time and even today that Miller's famous experiment validates the Oparin-Haldane hypothesis makes it scientifically reasonable for abiogenesis to take place. But what's interesting is this, and this is something that doesn't show up in biology textbooks, and that is that the atmosphere that Miller simulated in his experiments, supposedly representing the early Earth's atmosphere, is not the atmosphere that we now know existed on the early Earth. Miller thought the atmosphere consisted of water vapor, hydrogen, methane, ammonia. Well, it turns out that the atmosphere actually consists of, in the early Earth at least, consisted of carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water. And those gases, if you put those in the Miller-Urey experimental setup, as opposed to methane, hydrogen, and ammonia, those gases don't generate amino acids. In fact, they don't generate anything at all. It's a chemically inert, a chemically non-reactive system. And so, in other words, the Miller-Urey experiment, which supposedly validates the Oparin-Heldane hypothesis and the idea of abiogenesis and chemical evolution, is not relevant because it doesn't uh, appropriately simulate the conditions of the early Earth. And in fact, uh, Stanley Miller had two long-term associates who worked with him throughout his career as a scientist who said this in light of this new evidence. Is the prebiotic soup theory a reasonable explanation for the emergence of life? Contemporary geochemists tend to doubt that the primitive atmosphere had the highly reducing composition used by Miller in 1953. In other words, the scientific community no longer thinks, at least some people within the scientific community who are in the know, no longer regard the Miller-Urey experiment as justification or validation for the apparent Haldane hypothesis, but rather only view it as being historically important because it did stimulate further work in the origin of life question. But again, the Miller-Urey experiment is not justification or validation for this idea that life comes from non-life. And in fact, a critical component of, the, of, this, of chemical evolution, of the origin of life scenario, is that life comes out of a primordial soup. Well, if this primordial soup, which supposedly spawned life, existed on the early Earth, we should be able to demonstrate scientifically that that is true by going to the oldest rock formations on Earth, which date at 3.8 billion years, and look for a chemical signature that this soup would have left behind. And the fact of the matter is we see no evidence in these oldest rock formations for a prebiotic soup whatsoever. The prebiotic soup, the primordial soup, is essentially a scientific myth. It is not an established scientific fact. 
Noam Laev, an, an origin of life researcher who wrote a book called Biogenesis, said this, so far no geochemical evidence for the existence of a prebiotic soup has been published. Indeed, a number of scientists have challenged the prebiotic soup concept, noting that even if it existed, the concentration of organic building blocks in it would have been too small to be meaningful for prebiotic evolution. There was no, there's no evidence that a prebiotic soup ever existed. The Miller-Urey experiment is an interesting scientific experiment, but it doesn't have any relevancy to the conditions of the early Earth and therefore is not evidence for chemical evolution. Chemical evolution, the origin of life scenario, abiogenesis is a critical component. It's a cornerstone idea in the evolutionary paradigm and yet scientists cannot establish with any kind of scientific certainty that life indeed came from non-life through this process of chemical evolution. And so if a Christian takes the view that God is responsible for creating the very first life forms, that is a scientifically reasonable statement. That is a scientifically reasonable position to take because scientists cannot demonstrate the origin of life happened the way they think it happened through undirected uh, chemical and physical processes. Hello, Jeff Zwerink, and welcome again to the Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore important scientific ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today I'm joined by Dr. Fuzz Rana, now President and CEO of Reasons to Believe, and we're going to discuss what science has to say about the origin of humanity. Fuzz, good to have you here today. Jeff, thanks. So, uh, you know, you've written, uh, again, this is one of those topics I know you've researched extensively. I think you first published Who Was Adam uh, back in 2005, Five. 2006, somewhere in there. I know you had an update to it, I think, in 2015. Extensive update to it. Uh, again, I, take a few minutes here and just walk us through what yeah. is RTB's model on the origin of humanity? Yeah, well, we would adopt what I would call the traditional biblical perspective on human origins, which is that Adam and Eve were the very first human beings, that they were created through God's direct personal involvement, uh, and that uh, they are the sole progenitors of all humanity. All human beings come from Adam and Eve, and that they were uniquely made in God's image to, to stand apart from all other creatures. And so, you know, our creation model would, uh, in effect, predict that uh, when we look at the the origin of humanity, we would see evidence for a, 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 an origin of humanity at or near where the biblical text describes the Garden of Eden, that we would expect there to be evidence that humanity indeed did come from two individuals, and that there's something exceptional or unique about human beings compared to all other creatures. You know, our model rejects uh, our human evolution as mm -hmm. an explanation for the origin of humanity. Again, humanity would be uh, directly created by God, uh, but yet we acknowledge the existence of the hominins, of course, mm -hmm. and would say that these were just simply creatures that were created by God that had some intelligence, emotional capacity, but they lacked the image of God. Uh, we would also say that the, the shared biological features we see between humans and other creatures, like the great apes, reflects common design as opposed to common descent. So the evidence that people would cite in favor of human evolution, we would argue, could be explained in a creation model context. 
So what what would you put out there? You know, somebody said, okay, you know, you're kind of taking a position that's largely against mainstream science. You know, what what are kind of two or three key pieces of evidence that you would say, oh no, this is actually the right way to look at things? Yeah, well, I mean, for example, the, the the primary evidence that people will give for human evolution is again the shared biological features that we see between humans and other creatures. And so one example would be looking at the, the structure of the human chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And chromosomes are these pieces of DNA, large pieces of DNA that are complexed to proteins like, like the histone proteins. So the human genome consists of 3.2 billion genetic letters, but the, that it's not one large piece of DNA, but that DNA is broken up into 22 what are called autosomes and then one sex chromosome. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and each human being has uh, two sets of chromosomes, one coming from the mother, one coming from the father. So we have a, 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 a pair of 23 chromosomes or a total of 46 chromosomes. Right. If you look at uh, chimpanzees, they have 48 chromosomes. And what's interesting is chimpanzee chromosome 2A and 2B looks a whole lot like human chromosome 2, that you can actually lay, align those two chimp chromosomes uh, it, against the human chromosome 2, and the batting, banding pattern looks the same. There are, are internal telomeres in human chromosome 2, which are uh, characteristic sequences of DNA that are on the ends, tip ends mm -hmm. of chromosomes, and there are two centromeres. These are attachment points for uh, the mitotic uh, spindle that takes place during cell division. And so, so, so this looks like what's happened in the apes is you've got these two chromosomes that have fused together and become our human chromosome too. Exactly, exactly. And so the evolutionary argument it would be that this happened uh, bef uh, sometime after humans and chimps had their separate evolutionary lineages diverge. Mm -hmm. uh, it happened at some point in the in the human you know, evolutionary lineage. Now, uh, I've written uh, in the past that I, I'm uncomfortable with this scenario because it essentially relies on a sequence of highly improbable events. Telomere-telomere fusion is very unusual in chromosomes because the point of telomeres is to prevent fusion from taking place. And if you break off the tip end of a chromosome and remove the telomere, the chromosome loses stability because part of the role of the telomere is to actually stabilize the chromosome. So, so if I get what you're going at here, it's not you're not saying, okay, this doesn't look like a fusion event, but if you ask the question, what needs to go on for the fusion event, the things that show up just don't make sense in there. Right. It, it's a highly, highly improbable sequence of events. Okay. You know, because even if you did have chromosome fusion, that usually leads to a disease state because you have differing numbers of chromosomes. It, it makes, it, it renders the organism usually infertile. Mm -hmm. And so it, you just wouldn't expect to see that kind of chromosomal fusion. Well, there was a study done a, f a couple of years ago now by independently by two separate research groups that were looking at uh, chromosome fusion in yeast. And they were trying to see if they could take in Brugger's yeast, there are 16 chromosomes, and fusion, fuse them into a single massive chromosome. Well, this was a very complex process.
problem to solve because first of all, they had to very carefully choose which chromosomes they would fuse together mm-hmm. uh, in order to ensure that when the fusion took place, that there was a centromere near the center of the chromosome. They had to actually go in and, and deliberately deactivate one of the centromeres because if they didn't, the, ce- the yeast cell wouldn't divide. Mm-hmm. They had to very carefully splice away the telomere DNA mm-hmm. in order to get sticky ends that would lead to fusion. And then they had to do some tricks to actually get that fusion to take place. And then the resulting yeast cells, when they, they had essentially a single chromosome, they lost reproductive fitness. They weren't as robust as a wild-type yeast cell. And they oftentimes would, would lack uh, fecundity, they, the, their reproductive capacity was lost. Okay. And, and so what, they, what, what was being demonstrated experimentally is how difficult this fusion is, how precise it has to be, uh, and that the, the, the concerns that we raise were actually experimentally demonstrated to be valid uh, in the yeast about you know, loss of health, loss mm-hmm. of, of reproductive capacity. But what's intriguing to me is that if they didn't deactivate one of the centromeres, there's no way that the yeast cell was able to reproduce. Well, if in human chromosome 2, there are two centromeres, one is activated and one looks like it's undergone significant mutation. But when you look at the rate of mutation, it would take so long for that centromere to deactivate that it's highly unlikely that if there was a fusion event that resulted, that that you would be able to get mm-hmm. effective reproduction. So, in other words, what that study shows is that it's really unlikely that chromosomal fusion is a natural event. That if it does happen, it looks like it has to be engineered by an intelligent agent. And so, in our model, we would say that fused chromosome really reflects the deliberate action of a creator. Uh, not certain why that creator would would cause those two chromosomes to fuse. But apparently that was part of making human beings uh, who we are as human beings. You know, this is fascinating uh, just for a number of reasons. But one, it's like, you know, there's these things that look like they're, oh, they support this model, support something that's against Christianity. And then as we learn more, it's like, oh, no, that actually seems to be pretty compelling evidence for the truth of Christianity. And it kind of goes to your point. It's uh, that... Uh, you know, we expect to see divine intervention in what's going on. Uh, what what else do you expect? I mean, if you were to make a prediction here in the last 30 seconds, what else would you expect we would find as we continue to understand how humanity works? Yeah, I, I think we would continue to see more and more evidence that the, the, our genome, or the sum total of our DNA, uh, is is elegantly designed, that it's you know, reflects deliberate action on the part of an intelligent agent. And, you know, thanks to things like the ENCODE project, the trend line is going in that direction. Thanks, Fuzz. Really appreciate your comments. The origin of humanity is just a fascinating question, and it really comes to the fore when we look at the human genome. It really does seem to have these hallmark signatures of being very well engineered, not even just in how it works 
as a system, but also in how the chromosomes are put together. You know, I'd encourage you to go to reasons.org. Fuzz has written a great article about this yeast study. It's called Yeast Gene Editing Study Raises Questions About the Evolutionary Origin of Human Chromosome 2. Gives you great insight into what all's going on and how it actually points to the hand of God being at work in manufacturing humans. Go check the article out. Better equip yourself to go out and share the gospel. That's all the time we have for 2019 today. We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence. If you like content like this, don't forget to subscribe to the Reasons to Believe YouTube channel and also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at 2819show. And if you would like the audio version of this show, you can find us on most major podcast services. Just search Reasons to Believe Podcast. See you next week. Bye.